Welcome to the 188th installment of Ear to the Ground, the Land Stewardship Project's podcast on family farming, sustainable agriculture, local food systems, and local democracy. I'm Brian DeVore, editor of the Land Stewardship Letter. Autumn Brown believes we need to create a new narrative when it comes to race, class, and wealth here in America. Brown is with the Anti-Oppression Resource and Training Alliance, otherwise known as AORTA. This is a worker-owned cooperative of facilitators and consultants that helps organizations doing social justice work be more effective. Brown, who lives in rural central Minnesota, has recently facilitated workshops with Land Stewardship Project staff and members around the issue of racial justice. During his trainings, Brown leads participants through discussions centered around this country's history in making race a legal construct and the damaging impacts of myths related to race, poverty, and wealth. Addressing these issues is particularly critical to LSP as we work for justice and equity in rural communities and strive for a food and farming system that treats all people fairly. I recently talked to Brown about some of these issues and ways we can work to create a new narrative around race and social justice, particularly in rural communities, and ways we can use that narrative to bring about long-term positive change. She started out talking about how during workshops she uses a kind of racial history timeline as a way to spark discussion around where we've come from and where we need to go. You've been facilitating discussions with the Land Stewardship Project, and like a lot of sustainable agriculture, family farm organizations, we tend to get siloed into what we're working on because sure, it seems yeah. to be so all-inclusive what we're doing alone, but we, get, we lose track of how that connects to these larger issues. And one of the things that you really do a good job of is is laying out that timeline. So the the timeline is this uh, understanding the history of race in this country through understanding the history of white identity. Um, And for me, it was... Uh, it was inspired by an experience that I had many years ago when I attended a workshop with the um, People's Institute for Survival and Beyond. And they had done a a race history timeline and uh, that really impacted my experience. And over the years as an educator, as I sort of evolved as an educator, I started to realize, I sort of started to make this connection between that timeline that they had presented and the problem of um, how many of us really don't understand uh, the relationship between white identity and race. And so I sort of took it upon myself to develop this timeline that's really about saying, what is the relationship between white identity and mm-hmm. race? For me, it's been an ongoing learning process, a process of discovery. The timeline continues to evolve as I learn more about race history in this country. Um, but for me, as a mixed race person, I have both um, white ancestry and African-American ancestry. It it's been an important part of my own development to really understand um, what it means to be holding these multiple lineages. Um, And then it's become an important part of my political work. It is a really effective entry point for people to think about racial justice. Most of the way that we talk about racial justice in this country is, um, or the way we talk about race period and Mm -hmm. racism tends to be very polarizing. And I find that the way we discuss things really tends to either be really alienating for white people or it sort of doesn't give white folks an entry point into understanding like what is my role in this work and so for me i i just feel that being really grounded in our in our history as white folks matters a lot and so the timeline really begins um 
in in the 1400s it, and it because I, for me it feels like the the most important thing is first to understand that whiteness as an identity is uh it's not the same as other types of race identities or cultural identities. It is very much a constructed identity mm. and it was constructed very intentionally um, through a legal process. And so, so we go back to the 1400s because we have to kind of establish how it is it that Europeans even started coming here in the right, first place, right? right? <laughs> and then once they started coming here, what was the process by which they, they began to figure out how to actually create structures that would afford certain certain levels of access. And when I say access, I mean, you know, sort of access to the systems and institutions that are sanctioned by, at that time, the colonial government, but ultimately the state. One of the things that I found really interesting in my uh, research was learning that white as an idea identity, you know, as like a, as an actual legal identity doesn't even appear in a legal document for the first time until like 1691. (laughs) Right. Um, and the first time that we see it appear, it's very explicitly in relationship to defining, um, who can own land within the colony of Virginia. And so we begin to see from, from the late 1600s on through the 1700s into the 1800s, we see this evolutionary process whereby the colonial government and then eventually the state governments are really trying to develop a system that affords the right to own land, the right to vote, the right to access educational opportunities, the right to intermarry. They're trying to create a system by which those rights are afforded to some and not others. And that process is what creates racialization in this mm-hmm. country. So it's not like everyone showed up here having a race, right? right, right <laughs> it's right, like right, right. this was a this was a process and it was a it was a, you know, three steps forward, two steps back process. I think that that one of the other things that people don't realize about the history of whiteness is that it's always been what we call a contested space in society ever since it became a legal status um, in the 1700s, um, it has been a status that people have fought to achieve. Mm -hmm. And that fought, those fights have been carried out in the courts. Those fights have been carried out in communities. Those fights have been carried out in educational institutions. People have fought to gain that status. And then what we see in the 1900s is, is a sort of I guess the right way, the best way to put this is sort of like a, a narrative shift in terms of, oh, people, communities of color starting to understand, wait, 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 we shouldn't have to be fighting to achieve this white status. We should be getting legal status as in our own communities right. that affords us these same, right, these same rights and privileges. And that's where you really start to see what we, what we now think of in terms of the modern civil rights movement is really rooted in that shift of I'm not going to be fighting for white status. I'm going to be fighting for my own legal status, for my own group. And I think that's a major thing to get your mind around in that, and I know I'm guilty of this, as a white person, you, and I think you had you had talked about this before, you don't even really have to think about how things are set up for you mm-hmm. because you just, it's just assumed this is how I identify and this is who I am and society kind of is set up for, yeah. For, for, for whereas just the opposite, and you know the point you make is 
So then that became the, I guess, ultimate thing to attain almost. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It beca- and it's like for good reason, because society is set up to serve that. Exactly, exactly. And it, and, it, and, and you can sort of see the, I think of, of this as producing a sort of a, a feeling of insanity for a lot of people. Um, because what often happens then, uh, we see it right now in sort of the way these, uh, a lot of dialogues are playing out on the national level around these issues where you have, take for example, the issue of the border, mm-hmm. the, the border with Mexico, right. where you have a history of manifest destiny of Andrew Jackson saying, I'm going to intentionally take this land from the Mexican state and from the indigenous people who live there. Like we are intentionally going and we are changing where the border is. Mm -hmm. We're gonna take this land because we have a right to it, right? So you have all these people who are living, they have this the real lived understanding of the fact that uh, there was a Latino activist who put it really beautifully, who said, we didn't cross the border, the border crossed us, right? right? right. <laughs> so this real, like, we had this lived experience of understanding that these borders were created and enforced upon us. And so then when you have this national dialogue that's about where the, where the frame is about um, people illegally crossing the border, but the people that we're talking about are people who have the right to be on, in those spaces, right? Because their ancestors are from those spaces, mm-hmm. many of them, not all of them, but many of them. Yeah. Um, it produces a sort of, I think, a sense of insanity for all sides where you've got folks who are making an argument around illegality that's not grounded in history. And then you have folks who are making an argument for for open borders or for, or for rights, or at least the right to be, um, to have the option to gain citizenship, who are making that argument grounded in a real sense of the history of how that border even ended up there. And I think that that's, that one of the, one of the major challenges that our government is up against is that we basically are working on, you know, a couple hundred years of really unaccountable, oppressive behavior um, and trying to make arguments in relationship to indigenous communities and to um, black and brown communities about what they deserve and what they don't deserve and who has the right to what without ever really being accountable or really even telling the honest truth about the brutality that underlies how the um, the borders were erected mm-hmm. of our country. And so when you think, you know, one of the things that we often talk about in the LSP workshops and in a lot of other workshops where we're doing work that's focused on um, land and agriculture is that we, if we're really going to figure out how to operate in these spaces together in ways that are cooperative, in ways that are equitable, we have to begin by telling the truth about the stolen labor and stolen land mm-hmm. that is why we're here in the way that we are, yeah, <laughs> right? Yeah. And if we can't tell the truth about that, then we're going to keep ending up in these same dialogues that don't feel like they're making progress because they're not making progress. Right, right. <laughs> I think another really good thing you lay out is how long it really takes wealth to accumulate mm, in, mm-hmm. a, in, in families. Yeah, Yes. And I think it was in 2013 or 2014, there was this really interesting research published that showed that it takes between 10 to 15 generations for a family to move from wealth to poverty or from poverty to wealth without any direct intervention. Hmm. And, you know, that translates to about 
300 to 450 years. And so when you think about, um, without direct intervention, if you think about how recently people were enslaved in this country, you know, as recently as the 1860s, then you wouldn't expect people to actually be accumulating wealth without direct intervention until, you know, the 22nd, 23rd century. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> So wow. and so then when you look at this um, this sort of American mythology that we have that if we just work really hard if we make a real if we truly make an effort and get ourselves educated then we can change the trajectory of our family's history then you think well truly in a generation a family if if a lot of things fall into place a lot of those things being luck and tokenization. <laughs> Then, then you know, certain people may be able to gain a certain amount of um, financial stability, mm -hmm. and maybe if they're able to um, buy a home or buy land, then that will give them the opportunity to pass that on to their children, and that's where that wealth accumulation begins. But this, the myth that we can work really hard and then change the trajectory of our lives and the lives of our progeny, is I think especially dangerous because that myth is really it's it's really used as a weapon against communities of color who somehow haven't figured out how to work within the system. Right. And it really, again, it's this, it's this way of masking the actual history, which is that, you know, as recently as the 1950s and 1960s, we still had practices of redlining, of, of ensuring that people couldn't actually even buy housing, <laughs> buy houses in uh, middle class or upper middle class communities and neighborhoods, or ensuring that if they started to buy housing in those neighborhoods, then, you know, we had banks and real estate agencies colluding together to um, encourage white families to move out of those spaces, right? And then actually changing the the economics of, of, of geography, essentially. And so when you look at, when you look at how, how, I mean, and that's, you know, so that's the 1960s, in what in 2008 we had a housing bubble that burst why mm -hmm. why did we have that housing bubble in the first place because we had these faulty mortgages that were being you know that were again again this sort of we were weaponizing these financial systems against poor communities taking advantage of people who are already poor and making them even more poor and more in debt i think one of the really challenging things about about again, that mythology is that it, because the mythology is still so active as a story in our society, it makes it really hard to see what these modern day systems are still doing to these communities. It makes it really hard to actually see the reality of how hard it still is to actually accumulate wealth. There's this, there's this other side of it too, right? Where, and this is where, you know, that sort of the systems approach uh, and bringing an intersectional lens where we can kind of start to see where white supremacy and capitalism collude to keep poor people of color poor. Mm -hmm. And when I say capitalism, you know, oftentimes people look at our economic system and they, they're like, what do you mean capitalism is a, is a system of oppression? Well, uh, a, an economic system that requires that a certain population of people be in debt and that their labor be exploited and then not able to actually own the profits of their labor and the profits of their labor are literally owned by a small percentage of people. That, I mean, to me, that's sort of like, that is a perfect example yeah. of, a, of an oppressive system, right? Um, and of course, one of the other important things that happened in the development of American capitalism was that we had this real loss of a sense of a commons. You know, mm -hmm. we don't have 
we have to work really hard to create commonly owned spaces in the society, and there's there's it's very difficult to do so because along with that the the sort of twin myth to the pull yourself up by your bootstraps myth is the you have your your success in your life looks like owning something for yourself it doesn't look like owning something in common with others <laughs> right so so i think that there's that piece too where if we look at those two myths side by side that it is right and good to own for yourself um, and that should be your goal. And also, if you work really hard, then you then you will be able to own for yourself. But then we look at the economic system it, that's designed to ensure that people are carrying debt with them. It's really, really hard within a system like that to to act in your community's best interest, mm-hmm. to act within your own best interest, your family's best interest. Um, and then when you add the layer of all the ways in which many of those the um, institutions of the state are designed to really target certain communities that don't fit within the um, our idea of what it looks like to be an American, then you've really got a lot, there's a lot stacked against people in this country. Unfortunately, because of the fact that we've become progressively more segregated since the 1950s instead of less, we've got a lot of white people in this country who really legitimately don't know what's going on because they're not interacting with um, non-white communities or if they are, they're only interacting with them in sort of very specific ways and ways that are like, Oh, I have this one coworker who's a person of color Mm -hmm. or I have someone who cleans my house who's a person of color or my children maybe go to school with some people of color. But aside from those really specific and narrow relationships, we don't have, our society is not integrated enough, I think, for white people to really understand uh, what's what's happening. And so that, again, produces that sense of, <laughs> I keep saying this, and, and my all, all my friends who, like, suffer from mental health issues will probably be angry at me, but the sense of, the sense of insanity mm-hmm. that, you know, for white people, they're looking around, they're saying, what's the big deal? I don't get it. And it's like, well, of course you don't. Yeah. You know, yeah, you, you, yeah, it's yeah. been the, the whole system has really been set up so that you don't even have to understand it. So that, you know, rural white communities, uh, particularly people who are low income or middle class, have much more common cause with immigrant communities that are also coming to these parts of Minnesota than they do with, the, you know, the multinational companies whose interests are really directly impacting their lives, right? And so it's trying to, and so it, so cooperation, um, I mean, and when I say cooperation, I'm referring to economic cooperation, right. is really, uh, I think, an effective strategy for helping people look at that common cause and saying, okay, how do we actually build local economic systems that are to our collective benefit as opposed to participating in these economic systems where we're continuing to send our profits <laughs> where we're continuing to not have the benefit of our profits, basically. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to, I think that one of the one of the things that we're up against here and one of the things that Americans everywhere are up against is that it's hard to connect those dots when you have really, really powerful cultural narratives mm-hmm. that are telling a different story. And so I think that, you know, one of the things that we look we look at sometimes in the workshops with LSP is what are some of the cultural narratives that reinforce this picture that's not a true picture, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. <laughs> um, and and make it and uh, and intentionally, you know, obscure what's actually happening. And I think when you know when I've done organizing work um, out here in central Minnesota, it's been 
one of the things that's been hardest to fight is that it's the story that people have about um, why these communities come here, about what they're contributing or not contributing, mm -hmm. about what it means to be an American, what an American looks like. I think that there's this other piece about what do we do? What do we do as organizers? Well, what we have to figure out how to do is to tell a different story and tell a really powerful story that is sort of, to quote a kind of famous president, calling on the better angels of our nature. <laughs> right? Right, right. But, you know, not a, a story that's actually uplifting in all that we all that we have to gain from cooperating with each other. And those powerful stories are there, those stories of, of victories, those stories of wins, they are there um, and they have to really be intentionally uplifted. Mm -hmm. And I think that, so I think that that's where, what we, what we started to see as more um, and more of these really beautiful national campaigns that we've seen recently, like the campaign to fight the Dakota Access Pipeline mm -hmm. Is um, you know it's it's obviously it's a local campaign, but it's also very much a national campaign. And the right. narrative is so powerful. The, the narrative that water is life, and we are protecting the water. That is a powerful narrative that everyone can understand, mm -hmm. right? It's not like we're fighting these evil people. Right. It's rather we are protecting the water. The water is our ancestor too, right? Mm -hmm. And similar with the movement for Black Lives and Black Lives Matter, it's a powerful narrative that's not saying white people are terrible it's saying our lives matter and you have to see us and understand and recognize and honor that our lives matter just as much as yours so i think that when you see these there's a reason why these narratives are able to capture the imagination of mainstream society and pull people into movement work in ways that they otherwise wouldn't you know, we see people right now who are people are being politicized in this moment now in a way that they haven't been in decades, yeah, you know, because yeah. of the fact that their imaginations have been captured by this moment. And that's, I think, to me, the most hopeful aspect of what's happening right now mm. <laughs> is is how many people are engaged and they're engaged because there's a different story that's being told. Yeah. What would be for agriculture? And for the rural Midwest, what would be a really positive narrative right now do you, that you think would really help mm, pull gosh. people together? Have you thought about that? I Well, <laughs> I have thought about that. Well, so I, I, I don't feel like I have a great answer for that, but I do feel that you know, one of the things that I, for, there was a period of time where I was a director of a nonprofit in St. Cloud called the Central Minnesota Sustainability Project. Mm -hmm. And we were trying to do food justice and environmental justice work in St. Cloud. And one of the things that we, one of the narratives that we were trying to advance was this idea that, you know, we're all a part of the ecology and that we know that a healthy ecology um, in our environment actually requires diversity. Mm. In order for we we need we need that um, that sense of cooperation of difference in order for our environment to be healthy, mm -hmm. and so we were trying to build a narrative that was about saying we as humans our human ecology also needs that. I don't know that we ever got to a point where we really articulated that as like beautifully and as succinctly as something like water is life. You know, right, that's just right. so perfect. <laughs> um, but it was something that we were, we found, we did find that, um, that many people in the St. Cloud community, um, they felt moved by that idea. Hmm. You know, they felt moved by the idea of understanding themselves as a part of 
a fabric that was healthy mm-hmm. as opposed to a set of enemies that are sort of having to like compete to make sure that everyone's interests are right. are met. And so I think that there's something there's something there about really thinking of human ecology as connected to the ecology of the land um, that I think would be that could be a useful way for people who are doing farm and land and agriculture work mm-hmm. and are trying to come up with those stories. I think it could be a useful way to organize that story. Yeah. And I, and too, I think that there's, you know, especially in relationship to the water is life narrative, I think rural Minnesota is such a, there are so many communities of faith here that are just deeply rooted in a sense of the sacred. And I think that narratives that really are uplifting the sacredness of life and including land in that, um, those are very powerful. Mm. And I think that they have traction here because people are really grounded in a sense of, in a sense of the sacred, in a sense of what it is that we're here for and what it is that we're here to protect. We want people to, I think all of us collectively, we want people to be making choices together. I don't want people to feel like they're being forced into an economic system that doesn't work for them. That's what mm-hmm. we're already experiencing. Right. right? right. <laughs> what I want is for people to be able to collectively determine for themselves the kind of community and the kind of system that they want to have. And some of that requires us first to be able to unpack all the ways in which we're all we're already being forced into systems that are not serving us. Um, and that, that sometimes that's like the first step in the process is understanding, Oh wait, like you sort of stop and look around you're like, Oh wait, I didn't choose this and neither did my parents. Why, why am I, um, acting like I need to be committed to this system? Who actually is making the choice here? Right. You know, so often we think that we're making choices. So often, even those of us who have more economic privilege, we, we think that we're making choices when we're not really. Right. <laughs> Just kind of overall, as you, um, in your place here, and you speak to a lot of people, you, you uh, facilitate a lot of discussions with a lot of groups, and, you know, living here in central Minnesota, I mean, at this point in time, how positive are you about some, you know, you seem like a very positive person in that you think there are, there's a lot of potential there, but where where are we at? I mean, mm. how positive do you feel as far as like that one thing where you say it took to basically like 300 years? Yeah. <laughs> that kind of puts things in perspective. I'm like, ask me in 200 That's years. That's kind of depressing. Uh, to think about, but. I'll admit that I've had moments in the last week where because of what because of the level of like collective resistance I'm seeing, I feel I've had waves of like hopefulness that I have never experienced. Hmm. Just waves of like, wow, this could be, maybe this is it. (laughs) You know, just, I do, I have had those moments. They're fleeting. They're not like permanent. Right. Uh, Because I also have my moments of just really despairing and fearing for my life (laughs) and the lives of my children. But like there is a, an incredible, um, awakening that's happening right now. And it's, I don't think it's melodramatic to say that this is the moment Mm -hmm. and this is the moment where we fight or we lose. And so I believe based on what I'm seeing that we have the capacity to fight. And I know that when we fight, we win.
For more on the Land Stewardship Project's work related to racial and social justice, see our website at landstewardshipproject.org. For more on Aorta, see aorta.coop. That's A-O-R-T-A dot C-O-O-P. If you have comments or suggestions about this podcast, contact Brian DeVore at bdevore at landstewardshipproject.org or call 612-722-6377. Thanks to Laura Borgendahl, a Western Minnesota musician, for Ear to the Ground's theme music. And a special thank you to all of Land Stewardship Project's members who make initiatives such as this podcast possible. If you're not a member, visit landstewardshipproject.org to learn how you can support LSP. Thanks for listening. Thank <laughs> you.